Turn, if you would, to Philippians chapter 3. Our last lesson, we got to meet in person, and uh, that was a whole lot of fun. It's a lot more uh, interesting for me to teach with uh, people in the room. I read an article last year about the fact that we don't realize that even when somebody is speaking uh, to a group, it's really a dialogue because while one person is speaking, uh, he's getting cues from all the, the people in the audience. So there really is a dialogue going on and you don't realize how much I have missed that. I was pleased when we met that a couple of people did comment about the picture on the wall. Uh, if you see the the picture, it is a picture of one of my married daughters. This wall has pictures of all my married daughters. And some of you noticed that I started swapping them out so that you could see uh, the different pictures. And in fact, further down the wall is a picture of my wife in her wedding dress. And I put that up there a couple of times. And I even snuck in one picture of my Marine son. So uh, I was pleased that somebody noticed that I had done that. Uh, last weekend, my wife and I were on the, on the island of Chincoteague, which is in Virginia, uh, off the coast of Virginia. Uh, we went up there to spend time with my Pennsylvania daughter, and we had a good time. We uh, rode scooters all over the island, and that was a whole lot of fun. So we're picking up in chapter 3. When we met in person, we actually made it to verse 14. But I'm going to back up a little bit to verse 12. Uh, and kind of get a running start into today's lesson. So verse 12 of chapter 3. Not that I, this is Paul talking about himself, have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Jesus Christ has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting that which is behind I, and straining forward to what it lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So what we're seeing is this picture of running a race. Remember last the last lesson where we talked about well, Paul gave a resume. I mean, if anybody can be declared righteous because of his works, Paul said, it's me. Yet he counts all that as rubbish, as garbage for the sake of knowing Christ. But then he says, I haven't reached where I need to be. I am running a race. I am straining to achieve what God would have me to do. And that was last week's lesson. So, he begins in chapter in verse 15, starting today's lesson, let those of us who are mature think this way. And if anything, if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. So if you're mature, there's a certain way that you're supposed to be thinking. Well, he's looking back at the last three verses. And what does that tell us about how you ought to be thinking? Well, first off, the Christian walk is really a race. We call it the Christian walk, but it is really a race, and we are looking forward to a goal. Elsewhere in the scriptures, it talks about this race that we're engaged in. We are called to finish the race in 2 Timothy. If you remember in Hebrews, when we went through that in verse 12, it says, I mean, chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us 
also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. We have a goal that we are pursuing and we are to strive. We are to work to finish that. Now, once again, we always have to say this. What he's talking about here is the process of sanctification. We are justified. We are declared right with God. That occurs at a point in time, and God does it for us and to us. And then between that and our death, we are being sanctified. And to be sanctified means that we take the grace that God gives us continually, and we work that out in our everyday life. We are called to strive, to run the race. So what we need to remember, what he's telling us, those that are mature need to think this particular way, that the Christian walk is really a race and we are looking forward to the goal. So what should we think? We should think that we have not obtained everything God has planned for us. Now, this is difficult for us to understand because when we are saved, we have Christ given to us. But God wants us to work that out in our everyday life. So while we have everything that we need, we have forgiveness of our sin, we have the Holy Spirit, we have Christ with us, we still work to mature, to grow in our everyday faith. We work out what God has put into us. So we need to recognize that we are still pressing forward. We have not obtained everything that God has planned for us. And we'll talk in just a moment about what that means. What God has planned for us is that we would be conformed to the image of Christ. We are not already perfect. That's what he said up there, remember? It is not that I am already perfect. We are called to be perfect. We are declared to be perfect. But in our daily walk, we still stumble and fall, and we still need repentance, and we need continually the grace of God given to us. We are not already perfect. So we press on to make the salvation that God has given us our own because Christ has made us his own. Let's think about that. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more in just a moment. But the point is, it's not that we work to obtain Christ. It's because we have Christ, we work that out in our everyday life. It makes all the difference how you put that together in your minds. More about that in just a moment. Christ has made us our own. Even Paul doesn't think he has obtained everything yet. But he forgets that which is behind. He strains forward to what lies ahead. So what does lie ahead? Well, it talks about the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. What is the goal that we are striving for? Well, you'd think, man, it's probably a good answer that we're talking about heaven, okay? But we're not striving for heaven. When we are declared right with God through the finished work of Jesus Christ, heaven 
is guaranteed to us. The goal is that we would be conformed to the image of Christ. So you wake up every day and you recognize that there are parts of you that need to be well adjusted, worked on, so that you will conform to the image of Christ. And that is the goal. In fact, that is the goal. That is the prize. That is the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. What he's telling the church at Philippi and what he's telling us is don't think I've been saved. I'm done. I can sit back. I can relax and not do anything. What he wants them to do is to press on to maturity, to continue to grow in the faith. How do we know that we've reached maturity? Well, you've died. As long as we're on this earth, as long as God still puts us here and puts breath in our lungs, he is calling us to move closer and closer to Christ. And that's difficult for some of us to think about that God still has something for us to do. So let those of us, verse 15, who are mature, think this way. Think about the race. Think that we haven't obtained it all and strive toward what God has promised he will give us. And if any of you think otherwise, like maybe I don't need to grow, well, the God, the Holy Spirit, will reveal that to you also. So, once again, what are we called to do? We are called to be conformed to the image of Christ. Verse 16, only let us hold true to what we have attained. Now, remember, we talk about this all the time because it's so important. What have we attained? Well, we have attained salvation. We have been declared right with God. We have been justified. We are in Christ. We belong to him. We are no longer our own. We have been bought with a price. So we need to hold on to these truths. What happens if we don't hold on to these truths? Well, we begin to think that salvation, that justification, that being right with God is something we have to strive for. Notice he just said, we are striving toward the upward calling. We are striving toward that. But if we forget what God has done for us, we begin to think that that striving does it all. And then what happens? Well, we actually fall into a couple of different traps. One, we despair because we know we can't do it. We know we can't. And we work and we work and we work and we finally just collapse and say we can't do it because we have forgotten what God has already done for us. The other thing we do sometimes, which is kind of interesting, is we become legalistic. You know, I think, okay, I've done this. I've kept this list. Therefore, I'm right with God because I kept the list. And we begin to enforce, to force that list on other people. So we need to remember what God has done for us. Now, back up a little bit to one of the verses I read earlier. 
Paul says he is forgetting what is behind. And yet here he's telling us to hold on to what God has done for us at some point in time. What Paul is saying, I'm going to forget about what I've done. I'm going to forget about how I work to do it on my own. I'm going to forget about the sin that Christ has forgiven me. I'm going to forget about the good things I've done. But I am going to continue to hang on to what God has done for us. Because if we don't do that, we lose sight of the fact that when we are striving, we are doing it through the power of God. We are doing it through the power that Christ has given to us. Once again, because we belong to Christ, because we are in union with Christ, because we have been declared right with God, because of all of that, we can strive to be conformed to the image of Christ. The danger is that we begin to think that I'm doing it. It's me in my own power. And Paul is telling the church at Philippi, no, no, I am striving, but I'm striving because of what Christ has done for me. Not to earn anything, but to be conformed to the image of Christ. So only let us hold true. Hold on to that. Hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Now, to be quite honest, I've always thought this is a little arrogant of Paul. Paul is sitting there telling them, imitate me. Why doesn't he tell them, imitate Christ? Look to Christ. Do what Christ would do. Don't look at me. But Paul knows that we as, well, sinful human beings need examples of how we are to walk the Christian life. We are to look at those that are more mature than we are and say, I ought to be like that. Now, we do that remembering that that person is a sinful human being just like me. Remember what he just said. It's not that I'm perfect. It's not that I have obtained everything. It's not that I'm done, but I'm pressing on. So what he's telling us is to imitate me, not because I'm perfect. And in fact, he also says, imitate others who are pursuing the things of God. We need to see the community of believers pressing on, and we need to look to our elders and others who are a little more mature than we are and go, I need to imitate that. Now, Paul would say, without question, it's not Paul that we are being conformed to. It is Christ that we are being conformed. But our eyes, our weakness, sometimes we need a human example. But we remember that that human example is just another sinner pressing on. We're not following them because they're perfect. We're not imitating Paul because he's perfect. We're imitating him because he's pressing on to the upward call.
So, brothers, join in imitating me. I'm pressing on. I'm running the race. I'm fighting the fight. You should do the same thing. It's kind of interesting, that passage in Hebrews that I read just a moment ago. Therefore, we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Now, I usually take that to mean that uh, there are all the saints that have died before us. I mean, all the way back. And they're watching us and they're cheering us on. There is a crowd of witnesses saying, go, go, go. And that's a good thing. But sometimes we need human beings around us that are here, present right now, that we can look to and say, I need to press on like them. Now, I might add in our society today, we have so much publicity about um, religious leaders who have fallen from the faith. And that's a bad thing. I mean, it really is. In fact, um, in Catholic uh, ethical discussion, it's referred to as scandal because it, it is leading other people astray by your sins. And that's bad. But we need to remember, those people are just human beings like you and I are. But there are people in our lives that are pressing on. You know, I talk to my mother several times a week. I mean, I should. She lives in my backyard. And she's always telling me, you know, this morning I was reading this Bible verse. I was looking at this commentary. What does this mean? Let me tell you what I think. And that's the conversations that she has. And I need to imitate that. So, for whom? Well, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have told you now, and I've told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. So you're imitating Paul, but Paul is acknowledging that there's false teachers out there. In fact, he's alluded to that other places in the book of Philippians. He struggled with people that were coming behind him. He would start a church and he would leave and people would come behind him and they would start teaching other stuff. You know, well, Paul was kind of right, sort of right, maybe a little right, but he was wrong about this and you need to do this and you need to do that. And they were false teachers. And he says, I have warned you about them. They are enemies of the cross of Christ. What I think is interesting about this verse is notice what he says. I have often told you and now tell you even with tears. Sometimes we take great joy in pointing out the flaws of other people. Paul's not doing that. Paul is in tears because he understands that these people are fighting against the cross of Christ. He takes no joy at all in pointing out the fact that these people are enemies of the cross of Christ. In fact, as a general rule, I mean, as a general rule about rebuking somebody for whatever the cause, if you enjoy doing it, you probably shouldn't do it. Paul does not enjoy pointing out that these people are enemies of the cross. So what do these people look like? Who are these false teachers? Well, verse 19 gives us four things to look for 
when we're looking for the enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame and their minds are set on earthly things. So here we have a discussion about what false teachers look like. What are these four things? What do they mean? Their end is destruction. The word end is interesting because it's actually used two different ways. One is like the end result, where you're going. And to that, we can see that these false teachers, their end is, well, their end destination is destruction in hell. So what is their end? What is, where are they going to end up? Well, they're going to end up in a bad place. But we oftentimes use the word end for a purpose. You know, if you remember the Westminster uh, Catechism, and it says, what is the end of man? What is the purpose of man? And the answer is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So if we take the end as a purpose, their purpose is destruction. What are they trying to destroy? They're trying to destroy the gospel of the cross of Christ. How are they doing that? Well, we had a long discussion about this in the book of Galatians, where the Judaizers would come in after Paul, and they would try to convince the uh, church that in order to be a good Christian, you also have to be a good Jew. You have to follow the Old Testament law. So what they were destroying was the grace by which we are saved through the finished work of Jesus Christ. They were trying to say, no, let's put that aside, and here, let me show you what you have to do. They were destroying the gospel. As a general rule, and this is just kind of a general rule, you can tell something is a cult if they're taking the scripture and they're adding something on to it usually something that you have to do in order to be saved. I know it says that you're saved by grace, but we know that you have to do this also. They are really destroying the grace of the cross of Christ by saying the cross of Christ is not enough to actually save you. So their end is destruction. Their personal end is destruction in judgment. But their goal is to destroy the grace that we received through the finished work of Jesus Christ. So their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. Now, that's a great phrase. Unfortunately, it can apply to me a lot of different times. What they're saying is their desires are of this world. They want the pleasures of this world. Now, where is Paul when he's writing this? We talked about this in chapters 1 and 2. Paul is in prison. Paul is suffering for the gospel. Yet there are those who believe we shouldn't have to suffer any. In fact, I want to get along so that I can, you know, enjoy the good things of this life. Francis Schaeffer uh, wrote numerous times, and I've quoted this a lot because it um, means, it's important to me. It says, 
that modern man, and he's writing this in the 60s and 70s, modern man is seeking two goals, personal peace and affluence. And what I understand that to mean is we want to be left alone from the problems of this world and we want enough toys to enjoy while we're being left alone. I don't want to have to deal with the problems of this world. I just want some toys. And guess what? That's the way a lot of us are. But the false teachers are doing it in such a way that they can enjoy the things of this world while still pretending to follow the things of Christ. You go back to the Old Testament and you look at the prophets, not the true prophets, not the ones we have books about, but every time there were true prophets, there were also false prophets that were trying to fit in. They would go to the king and say, yes, king, everything's going to work out. Things are going to be great. You're a great guy and God's going to bless you. And the king would go, great. Thank you, prophet. Here, let me give you some money. Let me feed you dinner. Let me reward you. And the true prophet would show up and they would beat them and throw them in the well and they would ignore them. But the false prophets were doing it because their God was their belly. Now, I said, this is one that I can um, unfortunately relate to at times. There are times when I seek my comfort above all else. I seek my comfort and I hope God kind of blesses that. Um, I remember years, years ago, um, had an individual tell me, you know, I couldn't live without air conditioning. And I can agree with that. I'm in a nice room right now that's nice and cool. And in a few months, it's going to be terribly hot outside in my house. And I like that. But the reality is, if I tell God I can't live without air conditioning, what I'm really telling God is there's some places you can't send me. You can't send me to a place that's uncomfortable. You can't send me to a place that I cannot enjoy the comforts that I have right now. And what Paul is saying, that these false prophets are seeking after their own comfort. They're seeking after that which will fill their belly. That's a false prophet. What's Paul doing? Paul's in prison suffering for the gospel. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and they glory in their shame. What does it mean? Well, if you read the Bible, there are some actions that you and I, if we do them, we ought to feel shame. We ought to be ashamed when we violate the word of God. We ought to be ashamed when we do that which God has told us not to do. But you know what these people are doing? They're glorying. They are building themselves up because of their doing of things that they ought to be ashamed of. You know, I am free in Christ. I am free to do whatever I want to do. So if I want to go do this, 
when the scripture says you shouldn't do that, they are glorying in that which ought to bring them shame. Now, it is interesting because we see this in our society today uh, in a lot of different areas, but just one that is very obvious is in the uh, realm of sexual morality, where people glory in things that ought to bring them shame. And you see teachers in the church saying, yeah, God is love and whatever you think is right, you ought to go ahead and do it because it's really being done through love. And we end up bragging about that which we ought to be ashamed of. What we see people doing is using their Christian freedom as an excuse to sin. We saw this in the book of Galatians. Remember that discussion? You are free, but don't use your freedom as an excuse to sin. And then there was this long list of the works of the flesh, those things you ought not do. You shouldn't pretend that because you are in Christ, you are free to do whatever you feel like doing. In fact, the scripture is clearly, it's pretty clear that if you're doing those things, it is not an example of being free, but rather it is an example of being a slave to sin. So the false teachers, the people that, he's, that Paul is warning the church at Philippi about, their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in the things that, bring, that should bring them shame. Their minds are set on earthly things. Let's just think about that for a while. There are heavenly things. What are heavenly things? Well, Christ, his word, scripture, um, we follow those or we don't follow those. What are worldly things? Well, we know what that is. Those are the things around us. You know, we want that and we want that and we want that. In fact, let's think about that. Let's sit here for a while and really think about all the stuff that we want. Let's ponder this. Let's wake up in the morning thinking about the things that we want. Let's go to bed thinking about the things that we want. You ever do that? I have. We are thinking about earthly things when we ought to be thinking about heavenly things. We ought to be thinking about what God has done for us, what God is continuing to do for us, about the grace that God has given us, what God requires of us, what God has... You see the picture, right? We're going to have a discussion about this later when we hit chapter 4 because he's going to tell us about the things that we ought to be thinking about. We, we live in a very materialistic age. We see all this abundance around us. And in case you wonder, we Americans live in the middle of abundance. And we begin to focus on that thing and that thing and those things over there. And that's what occupies our thoughts every day. 
Their minds are set on earthly things. What we're going to see in chapter 4 is he's going to tell us, here are the things you ought to be thinking about. Those are the things that you ought to be thinking about. But instead, instead, what are you doing? You're thinking about the things of this earth. I mean, let me just read the verse to you, okay? Chapter 4, verse 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. It is interesting, most of us, myself included, most of us have not trained our mind. We kind of think, you know, my mind is mine and it's hidden from the world. Nobody can see it and I can think about anything I want. And Paul is telling us these false teachers, their minds are set on earthly things. If your mind is set on earthly things, almost by definition, it is not set on heavenly things. So their end is destruction. Personally, they're going to be destroyed, but their goal is to destroy the grace of the cross of Christ. Their God is their belly. They want pleasure. They want to enjoy their comfort. They glory in those things of which they ought to be ashamed, and their minds are set on earthly things. Now, I know Paul is telling the church at Philippi, these are the people that we need to watch out for. The reality is sometimes we can catch ourselves falling into these. I know that. That one about minds being set on earthly things, mm, I can think of many times, most of the time. That that's what I do. I begin to think on the things of earth more than the things of heaven. But, verse 20, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So here is the potential sin of thinking about the things of this earth, when in reality we are citizens of heaven. What does that mean? Well, I am a citizen of the United States and I go to another country. Let's say that I go as an ambassador. In, in uh, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 20, uh, we are called to be an ambassador. Okay, So I go as an ambassador to some foreign country. Now here's the easy question. It is an easy question. If I am an ambassador from the United States in another country, which country's interest am I looking out for? Well, the country that sent me. Now, we're going to talk in just a moment about the fact that it's okay to look about, you know, we want good things to happen where we are. That's okay. More about that in just a moment. But if my citizenship is in one country and I go to another country, I need to represent that country in the country to which I have been sent. So we, since we are called by Christ to be ambassadors, 
we need to acknowledge the fact that we are no longer citizens of this world. Our citizenship is in heaven. And from heaven, we're waiting for something. We're waiting for someone. We're waiting for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, to return. I like this list of names. We're waiting a Savior. Who is that Savior? The Lord. What does it mean that the Lord? It means that he is our rightful king. You know, if I am a British citizen at and I come as an ambassador to the United States, I am representing the Queen of England in the United States. In the same way, we have a king and we are representing that king. What if I was the ambassador from England into the United States, I was supposed to be representing the Queen and her desires, and I get over here and I spend all my time breaking the instructions that she has given me. Well, I'm not a very good ambassador and I'm not acknowledging that she is the rightful ruler. We, as citizens of heaven, have to acknowledge that we have a Lord. We have a rightful ruler. We have a king. But you know what? We don't really like the idea of having a king. I liked what one commentator said uh, several years ago. Most of us treat God like we Americans treat the Queen of England. You know, we'd be nice to her. We'd say good things about her. If she showed up, we would be polite. But we don't have any expectation that she can tell us Americans what to do. If I remember correctly, we fought a war so that we wouldn't have to listen to the king or queen of England. And many of us view God in the same way. Yeah, we'll be nice. We won't badmouth him. But you know what? We're not going to let him tell us what to do. We... We, since we are citizens of heaven, we eagerly await a Savior, the Lord, that is a rightful ruler, to show up. Now, here's the question. Are we really eagerly waiting for the king to show up and make a judgment about whether we have or have not been loyal to our sovereign. Don't you remember there was a, a parable about the guy that, you know, built the vineyard and all that stuff, and then he left. And he comes back, well, he sends a servant back to gather his prophets, and they beat him, throw him, I mean, throw him out. Then they send another one. Then they, he sends his son, and they kill the son. What they were doing is they were not acknowledging the sovereignty of the person who owned that property. So here's the question. Do we acknowledge that Jesus is our Lord? Not a Lord that, you know, is a horrible dictator, but a rightful ruler over us who has the right to give us instructions on how we ought to live our life. So we have 
we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. What does the word Jesus mean? Well, Jesus would be Jesus' common name. What it actually means, though, is that he is a Savior, that he is sent to deliver or rescue someone. That is his name. And he is the Christ, which means he is the Messiah. So look at this. We, since we are citizens of heaven, are waiting for the King of heaven to show up. And he is our Lord. He is our Savior. He is the promised Messiah. Because our citizenship is in heaven. But back up just a little bit. There the false teachers, their minds are set on earthly things. Do you think the person whose minds are set on earthly things is eagerly awaiting a savior to show up? No, they're scared to death of the real Lord Jesus Christ showing up. We are called to be citizens of heaven. Um, I'm always reminded of the... Uh, the, the hymn, this world is not my home, I'm just passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. Do we really believe that? Or do we really believe that this world is it? That's what the world is teaching us right now. There is no God. This is it. When you die, you become worm food. That's all it is. But remember what Paul said earlier in this book, you know, to live is Christ, to die is gain. I live, I can keep ministering. I die, I go to heaven, and that's better. But you know what? Whatever God wants, that's what I'm going to do. He recognized that he was a citizen of another country. So, but I did make the comment just a while ago, we are citizens of another country. But if I was a U.S. ambassador to England, I would want good things for England. I mean, I'm not a citizen of that country, but I don't want it falling apart. And we have an interesting passage in the book of Jeremiah. Remember, the nation has been um, captured and sent off to Babylon. And he says, thus says the Lord, this is chapter 29 of the book of Jeremiah, verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply here and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare." And this is interesting. We are citizens of heaven and we are ambassadors to this world. But you know what? We should pray for those around us. We should pray that our leaders make wise decisions. We should pray that righteousness has a place in our society. We should pray for the good of this society. Look at this list of things. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens. Eat what you grow. Take wives, 
Carry on with your life. Don't forget that you are a citizen of heaven. But when you do these things, do them as a citizen of another kingdom. So it isn't that, well, the world is going to hell in a handbasket and I'm going to sit over in the corner and just wait for it to fall apart. No, we want God's righteousness here on this earth. We want that to happen, but we're not counting on it. Our citizenship is in heaven. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. So, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. When Christ returns, we will receive a glorified body. Now, there's been lots of discussion about what that body's going to look like. You know, will I have hair? I don't really care. What will our glorified body look like? I don't really know. The example that we're given here is Christ and his glorified body. Uh, I suspect, you know, that it'll be the perfect me, whatever that is. Okay. I don't know. But you know, as I get older and I get a little stiffer and I have a little trouble getting up and I have an ache here and a pain there, I begin to appreciate the idea that at some point I'm going to have a glorified body that's not going to have those problems, that aren't, isn't going to have you know, the bad cells running through my body. It will be what Christ intended it to be. I think there's some connection here back to Adam and Eve before the fall as they were created to be. We'll still be human beings, but somehow he is going to transform this lowly body, this body that is suffering. And you can imagine, you can imagine the scars that Paul had on his body. I mean, he had bruises, he had cuts, he had lashes, he had all of that stuff. And he's saying sometime, at some point, this lowly body is going to be turned into a glorious body. But the important part of this verse is the second half of it. He's going to do this. He, Jesus, is going to do this by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. All things are subject to Christ. Now, we have this long philosophical discussion. You know, if God is all-powerful, why does he allow bad things to happen in this world? If all things are subject to Christ, why is it that so many, sometimes even us, tell Christ to go away? Well, we can discuss the idea of free will and God allowing us to do what he doesn't want us to do, but what we choose to do. But we have to acknowledge the fact that the power resides with God. The power resides with Christ. And it's interesting because, you know, back in chapter one of the book of Philippians, verse six, it said, Paul said, I, Paul, am sure of this, that he who began a good work 
in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So God began a good work in you and he is going to bring it to completion when Christ returns or you die and go to heaven. How can we be sure that Christ can really do that? You know, maybe Christ is working real hard, but he just doesn't have enough strength. How do we know that he can do it? Because this verse says, by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. This is what we see at the end of Romans chapter 8. What can separate us from the love of God? Can this or that or worldly powers or heavenly powers or life or death, can any of that? And the answer is no. Why? Because Christ has the power to subject all things to himself. He who began the good work will bring it to completion. And that's the promise that we have. So what have we learned in all of this? Well, we've learned that we are to press on to maturity. We are to continue to grow. Now, it's kind of like um, growing something in your garden. I remember as a child growing something in the garden. And you know what I did? I did what a lot of kids do. I wanted to know if it was really growing. Was it really growing? So I'd pull it up. You go, no, it hadn't grown much. And at this point, it's dead because I just pulled it up. Sometimes maturity happens so slowly that sometimes we don't acknowledge it. But over time, we become conformed to the image of Christ. And over time, some of those things that, you know, used to really upset us, we begin to realize, you know, in light of eternity, it's not that big a deal. We need to press on to maturity. And we need to remember that there are those who are trying, who are trying to walk away from the cross of Christ. In fact, they are enemies of the cross of Christ. And we're told that their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. So if I could encourage you today, tomorrow, when you wake up, Think for just a moment about a heavenly thing. And then the next day, just a few more moments. A few more moments. It's like I've said, when you don't have to think about something. You know, sometimes you're doing some project and you have to think about it. But when you don't have to think about something, what do you think about? The answer is we should be thinking about heavenly things. I'm not sure that's always true. Well, I am real sure it's not always true in my life. So we need to work at that. We need to remember that our citizenship is not in this world, but our citizenship is in heaven. So we'll stop there, and next week we'll start chapter 4. Thank you.